Welcome back to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Carlos, great to have you back on. Oh, it's always uh, great to be here with you. Well, we're coming from the two episodes we did on St. Teresa of Avila, part one and part two. And I'm happy to say that every episode of the Christian Mysticism podcast that comes out becomes more popular than the previous one. So I want to take a moment and thank all our listeners and supporters, all the great emails of support that you've sent us and for listening to the podcast. So as we start our 12th episode this year, what are we talking about today, Carlos? We're talking about the physical phenomena of mysticism, something that we we touched on it to, to some extent when we were dealing with St. Teresa of Avila and her levitations. And um, there, there are so many things that can be said about this topic. It's a huge topic, but we'll, we'll try to keep it to some of the, the more basic issues and basic questions that one can ask about this. Now, when you say physical phenomena, I assume you're speaking about the levitations, stigmata, but also about more spiritual things as well, correct? Oh, yeah, because, you know, the, the basic assumption and basic claim of Christian mysticism is that human beings, embodied as they are, time-bound as we are, can cross over to a different dimension, the divine dimension, which is outside of space and time. And that's a huge claim, right? And it would be one thing to say, okay, fine, all these people claim, all these people we call mystics, they claim to have these ecstasies and they claim to have these experiences, but we have historical evidence that the bodies of many of these mystics also transcend space and time and the laws of nature so that the ecstatic moments can be not in all cases but in some they can be and have been accompanied by impossible things levitation bilocation glowing telepathy stigmata although you know i i always put a footnote on stigmata because stigmata is a phenomenon that is very easy to fake. And we have many, many cases in history of individuals who have faked their stigmata. Uh, so I, I kind of put that on a, a separate list. Although in the case of some saints, it's been genuine. But, you know, floating in the air, being in two places at the same time, radiating a glow when you're in ecstasy, going into like basically your body freezes up in whatever pose you were when you go into your ecstasy and you stay that way for a long time and nothing we can talk about this in a few minutes but there's nothing anyone can do to move you or to get you out of your trance you know the medical psychological term for this is a cataleptic seizure mystics so many of them go into what the medical profession calls cataleptic seizures. And during those seizures, these other things happen to their bodies. Yeah, there's strange things. And by all accounts, you know, by modern science, these are impossible things. These are things that do not and cannot happen. But we have a lot of historical evidence uh, to the contrary, even into the 20th century. I know we're going to talk a lot about some of the mystics throughout history that that have been well documented that have experienced these physical phenomena. But I just wanted to touch, you know, maybe point out a couple in the 20th and perhaps 21st century that that come to mind. Yes. Well, we have one very well-known 20th century mystic who was canonized not very long ago, Padre Pio, or now Saint Padre Pio, Pio Tuchina. 20th century. He died in 1968. I remember uh, when he died. I'm that old. I remember hearing about Padre Pio as a child, you know, this uh, Capuchin Franciscan who um, had mystical ecstasies and levitated and bilocated 
and had the stigmata. And then there's someone who is not very well known, but is equally amazing. And this is Sister Yvonne Aimé de Malestroit, a French nun, 20th century, died in uh, 1951. So um, she and I were alive at the same time briefly, because I was born in 1950. And, and her story is amazing, absolutely. And it's, it's just beginning to get attention in the English-speaking world. So these things continue, and there are others. There are others who could be mentioned. But for the purposes of this podcast, let's just stick with those two as, as the almost present-day examples. Well, I know we've been planning on episodes on, on Padre Pio, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the other one that you said. <laughs> But it seems that an amazing story like hers deserves its own episode as well. Oh, yes. And I, I'm still learning about her. I didn't know about her existence until last year. Oh. And lo and behold, I've, I've run into this. And there's so much literature on her in French. And, of course, she wrote in French. But hardly anything is available in English. But I, I can read French, so it's not a problem for me. But I'm just starting to get acquainted with this, this 20th century nun and her remarkable, very remarkable life. Well, we'll let you do your scholarly research and get more <laughs> familiarized with it before we attack that episode. Let's talk a little bit about this phenomena. How is it being explained? It's all about the body-soul connection, right? In Christian theology, human self is not just a body. Human self has various components, but it has two basic components. And one is the body, which is material, and it dies. And then there's soul. The soul is eternal. And that's one of the great mysteries in the Christian religion. And it's actually not just Christians who have this body-soul dichotomy, right? And this goes way back before Christianity existed. And ancient Judaism had something of that. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew. In the English translation, you sometimes get the word soul, sometimes you get the word spirit. The Hebrew word for that is ruah, which is linked to breath or breathing. And um, it's a basic human observation. When a human being stops breathing, they cease to exist materially. But in the Christian faith, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus is constantly making reference to this duality uh, and so is St. Paul in all his letters, and so are the other letters, epistles in the New Testament, that there is uh, an immortal part to the human self, which as Christians began to uh, think about all of the New Testament passages and the revelation in the New Testament, began to um, bring in Greek philosophy to help them think about what this duality is. And from very early on, the human soul has been deemed not just immortal, but connected to the spiritual dimension. So body is matter, soul is spirit. How do those two relate to each other? And when a human being, a mystic, crosses over into the other dimension, how is that relationship affected by the experience? And, and you know, this is the, this is the bottom line. This, this is the golden nugget, okay, of, of Christian mysticism. If, in fact, all of these experiences which mystics claim are real, is there any kind of external material proof that something is happening? So this is where we get to this body-soul connection uh, being the key to explaining these absolutely strange and weird things that have happened to some mystics for 2,000 years or more. You know, St. Paul speaks of, in the third person, he knows someone who has been to the third heaven. And most biblical scholars think that Paul is referring to himself. But he says, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. So this is another dimension of this, you know, physical aspect of mystical experience is that the, the, those who are experiencing this other dimension often cannot tell, cannot distinguish between their soul and their body. Although some can. St. Teresa did all the time. And, and St. Teresa, as we discussed last time, 
she thought the body actually paid a heavy price for these mystical ecstasies because her body hurt all the time after them. And that resisting the physical phenomena of the ecstasies made them extremely painful. So she knew what she was talking about, whether it was in the body or out of the body. But St. Paul is a little less certain or wants to cover up something that he thinks people might not be ready to hear. Well, we know that these physical phenomena can be controversial and people who don't believe in them, atheists or not necessarily atheists, could just be Christians that don't want to believe that these types of things happen, try to find explanations for it. But there's certain phenomena such as bodies that refuse, bodies of saints that refuse to decompose that are kind of hard to refute. It's there. It's visible. You can actually see it that it's not decomposing. Now, you can try and find some scientific explanation for it, but as far as I know, no one has found it. But has there been, you know, besides the incorruptible body, has there been any other studies that you know of or investigations that have been able to confirm these physical phenomenons? Uh, well, this is still a... Uh an area of great disagreement. And actually for anyone in the early 20th, the early 21st century, such as myself, to actually come out and say or argue that the historical evidence cannot be ignored is troublesome in a professional sense. The, the supernatural has been evicted from history since the late 19th century. We're now an intellectual culture dominated by what some call dogmatic materialism. And that is the accepting as absolute truth, as a fact, that whatever modern science tells us is possible or impossible, is possible or impossible. So defying the laws of gravity, for instance, levitation, impossible. Although we have, you know, maglev trains <laughs> that levitate and we have ample proof of the fact that you know, magnetic levitation exists. We also have ample proof that sonic levitation exists, that sound waves can cause small objects, even frogs to you know, hover. So we, we do have some scientific proof of levitation existing, but I don't know of any modern scientist other than one who contacted me about three or four weeks ago who thinks that there is a way of scientifically explaining human levitation. But this scientist who, who contacted me, who is from Wales in the United Kingdom, he's just still emailing me and giving me his thoughts on it. It's complicated. I don't quite understand exactly where he's going with his arguments, but he thinks it's definitely possible. But most scientists will say no. No, no, this can't happen. And the other things can't happen either. So that all those historical accounts and all the eyewitness accounts, they're, they're just lying. Or they were mistaken. They were fooled in some way. But the bottom line is, for a historian such as myself, is that we have all these testimonies. And some of these testimonies continue into the 20th and 21st century. You know, obviously, I'm not a scientist, I'm a layperson, but I try to read a lot and I try to learn a lot. And one observation I've made, when you look at scientists from centuries ago, the Isaac Newtons and the Da Vinci's, when they came across something that they could not explain, even though they may have attributed it to God, they still tried to find a scientific, physical explanation for it and didn't just write it off. And as you mentioned, starting in the late 19th century, when science started making that turn away from even the possibility that God can exist, you start noticing that things that cannot be explained, they just simply ignore. They ignore or they try to find some way of despiritualizing. Well, maybe ignore is not the right word. Perhaps some ignore it, but I think a better way of saying it would be is that they try to pretend that it never happened, as you mentioned earlier, that people were fooled, right. that people didn't see what they thought they saw. 
And because if they believe that testimony, if, if they give it credibility, then they would have to admit they can't explain it. And it would have to be some type of force that they are not aware of. And it possibly might be God. And pardon so, the pun, God forbid, anything <laughs> is attributed to God. That's right. Or, you know, God forbid that there is some dimension beyond the material, which actually interacts or intersects with the material dimension constantly, actually constantly and fundamentally, which is what makes, you know, this is the, 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 the claim that mystics, Christian mystics uh, make is that there is a fundamental connection between the spiritual and material dimensions, the divine and the human dimensions. So yeah, it's it's troublesome. But you know, you mentioned incorruptible bodies. We just had one two weeks ago in Missouri. Came up a I can't remember her order. I think she was Carmelite. Wilhelmina, sister Wilhelmina, died in 2019. Was buried in 2019, and they just dug up her body to move it to a different grave inside the the, the, the nuns' chapel. And they were surprised to discover she's totally incorrupt. And thousands of people in, have been flocking to Missouri to view and touch her body. It is now encased in glass, so nobody can touch it anymore. But thousands and thousands of people, if anybody's interested in looking this up in very recent news, Sister Wilhelmina, the incorruptible corpse of Sister Wilhelmina in Missouri. Well, regardless of what the scientists say, this is not a show about science. This is a show about this is a show about Christian mysticism. So no. let's talk about, <laughs> yes. let's go back to the mystics. Yes. And do all mystics experience some type of physical phenomena? No, no, they do not. And actually, there's such a long list of phenomena. No mystic ever experiences all of these possibilities. It's a mix and match kind of order to the number of phenomena that any mystic experiences. And many well-known mystics, I mean, for instance, uh, St. Augustine, we don't have any accounts of his, the physical dimension of his ecstasies. Meister Eckhart, we don't have any. Julian of Norwich, we don't have any. But there are plenty of others that we do have accounts of these things happening. Some of them, not all of them. And actually, as we uh, discussed last time with uh, Teresa of Avila, she was not too happy with her levitations, and she actually begged God to stop them. And she claims that they did stop after begging and begging and begging. So there's no blueprint that, that let me phrase it differently. Yes, there are a number of phenomena, but every mystic is basically like a different blueprint. Like, you know, in, in home design, homes have certain features Right, but you can you mix and match, and not every home can needs to have the same blueprint. So going back to what we discussed earlier, we were going to stick with mystics that were back in history. So why don't you give us some examples of those and what they experienced in terms of physical phenomena? Yeah, well, uh, one of the best known, perhaps the best known, is St. Francis of Assisi, 13th century. St. Francis experienced something that no Christian mystic had experienced before. He is the first. And after him, there are many. And that's the, and it's always referred to as a gift, the gift of the stigmata, which is the wounds of Christ. Wounds of the suffering Christ are manifested in the body of the mystic. So the nail holes in the hands, nail holes in the feet, and the gash in the side from where the lance was thrust into Christ's chest suddenly miraculously appear in the body of the mystic and remain there. They don't go away. So whoever gets this gift is permanently wounded and permanently bleeding. It's a very strange gift, but it's, of course, a manifestation of identity with Christ, of likeness to Christ. And the thing is, Francis is the first, but then, you know, it happens to females as well as to males. And some mystics claimed, such as Catherine of Siena, 
claimed that she received the stigmata, but she begged God to keep it invisible so nobody would know. So what all she got was the pain of the wounds without the wounds being visible. Now, in the early accounts of the life of St. Francis, it seems pretty clear that the stigmata were not simply like gaping wounds. In the case of the early descriptions of Francis stigmata, it's like he had nails protruding from his hands and feet. And he, he kept his hands wrapped up. And uh, when anyone would bump into him, he would like wince in pain. And people were wondering what's going on with his hands and his feet. And eventually it all became disclosed, you know. that. And there's a, a very graphic description of the vision that he received, that he experienced on Mount Alvernia of the crucified Christ with uh, six seraphic wings. And as he was experiencing this vision, he received the stigmata. As I said before, this can be easily faked and has been faked. And actually many of these fakes have been discovered. But there have been many others which have been uh, examined very closely and have been deemed to be unexplainable by modern science. But Francis also levitated Actually, in some cases, he is uh, described as levitating to very, very great heights. And he also bilocated. He was seen in two places simultaneously. So Francis has a, a very um, hefty package <laughs> of physical phenomena associated with, with his ecstasies. And while we're on, on just on Francis, because this applies to all other mystics who have these physical phenomena. The phenomena manifest themselves while the person is in ecstasy, except for stigmata, which are like a permanent thing, right? A permanent mark that, that just doesn't go away. But all these other phenomena are linked to the moment of ecstasy. They're not permanent. It's not like some mystic goes around, you know, never stepping on the ground for the rest of their lives once they start levitating. No. These, these gifts come and go as ecstasies come and go, except for stigmata, which are in a class all by themselves. And we have many other um, mystics, medieval mystics and early modern and modern mystics who continue to exhibit these physical manifestations of ecstasy. And some of the, the better known ones are St. Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Jesuits. Now, he never talked about it. I mean, he never wrote about it himself. We don't have any descriptions from him of when or where this was happening, but we have descriptions from others who actually witnessed him levitating at prayer and not only levitating, but actually glowing, emitting this glow, radiating light. Their bodies were radiating light as they were floating in the air. There are many descriptions of this for Ignatius Loyola, for Teresa of Avila, which we discussed uh, last time. Uh, yeah, she, she levitated and glowed. Her body, too, was incorruptible. And Teresa begged God to stop the levitations. Why would she do that? Well, she was afraid that this was calling too much attention to her. And that was the wrong thing during her time because levitations can also be ascribed to the devil. And a lot of all these other physical phenomena can also be ascribed to the devil, except for the stigmata. And they have been. So anyone who was reported as having these physical phenomena uh, manifesting themselves or claimed to have it, have these themselves, they could get into trouble, especially in the early modern period with Catholic authorities because this, they had to sort things out and discern whether this was divine or demonic. So that's why Teresa uh, was so cautious and begged God to, to stop the levitations. You know, what's interesting as we talk about levitations, and you mentioned that some consider it to be demonic, I can't help but to remember, at least as a kid watching the movie, and it really, <laughs> it really did affect me uh was the exorcist yes absolutely and, and 
the two things that really got to me and and just scared me to death were the levitation and the voice. Yes. And I can understand because outside of Christian mystics, you hear accounts, you read accounts of people experiencing levitations, people experiencing strange physical phenomena that the, they're not mystics, uh, either Christian or or any other right. religion. They're yeah. just regular folks, and they're experiencing this phenomenon. A lot of times, they're in a ecstasy. They're they're sort of not connected to to reality. They're they're sort of awake but not awake. So yeah. It, that it could be attributed to to demons or or to the devil is not totally out of the question. Yep. And here's here's the the strangest twist in the story of mystical physical phenomena. All the Protestant reformers, all of them, first generation and second generation, denied that it was possible for humans to have mystical experiences of the divine. So they they rejected all of all previous 15 centuries of Christian mysticism as false. But more than that, they attributed them to the devil instead of to God. So these were not divine physical miracles. They were demonic physical. They can't be called miracles technically in Christian theology because the devil is not divine and the devil is not the devil is a creature, he's a fallen angel, but the devil is so old and so wise and so much smarter than humans that the devil knows how to manipulate nature and how to manipulate its laws. So he can make people hover and fly. He can fool people too into thinking that they're seeing somebody fly. But here's the curious twist. While Protestants disagreed intensely with many points of Catholic theology, they agreed almost 100% with Catholic demonology. So these phenomena in Protestant culture came to be associated with the devil. And um, well, there are many accounts of Protestants trying to exercise possessed human beings possessed by the devil, which just like the actress Linda Blair in the movie The Exorcist, Levitate. Actually, I, I, I found last year a, a 1693 account from Boston involving one of Boston's most esteemed Puritan clerics, Cotton Mather, a young teenage girl who was possessed by the devil who floated above her bed and up to the ceiling. And uh, there were all these Puritan men in the room with her who tried to hold her down and could not hold her down and then could not pull her down from the ceiling. And Cotton Mather uh, forced all the men who were in the room with him to actually sign affidavits <laughs> that this has happened and that they were there and this indeed did happen. So, you know, this, this is a a complicated issue, this demonic dimension of, of these phenomena. But the fact is that while Protestants denied the possibility of divinely induced levitations, they continued for a long time to believe in demonically induced levitation. So where does modern science fit in on this? Well, but by 1693, Newton's law of gravity was already well known, even in Boston. Another interesting twist here is, you know, we talk about mysticism and, and we concentrate on Christian mysticism, but, you know, we all know mysticism exists in other religions and really someone who is manipulated by the devil, someone who is possessed by a demon, however you want to phrase it, it's sort of a mystical experience as well, wouldn't you say? Well, uh, it's definitely, Be a, let's call it trans-dimensional. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's my yeah. point, because you have, they're crossing over, yes. because yes, we're, because we're basing ourselves on the assumption that there are two dimensions, two, two different places, 
the physical world and the spiritual world. And we all know God exists in the spiritual world, but so does Satan. Yes, in, in traditional Christianity, yes. You know, in modern, modern mo many uh, currently existing Christian churches have turned the devil into a metaphor, no longer believing in, in the real existence of the devil. But traditional Christianity, yes. And there are actually now in the early 21st century, many Protestant churches that are very heavily into deliverance ministries, delivering individuals from the devil. But that gets us into a whole other, whole other area. But to, to, to return to the, you know, mystics who have exhibited these physical phenomena, no one is more extreme than St. Joseph of Cupertino, who I, I don't think we've talked about. He was a 17th century Franciscan friar, born in 1603, who is the, the most extreme levitator in Christian history. His levitations were so constant and so extreme that his order, the Franciscans, kept moving him to ever more remote locations because he attracted so much attention. And the eyewitness testimonies we have of his levitations is so overwhelming that it defies description. And sadly, because he was such a quote-unquote distraction, and he kept being moved to ever more remote locations in the last decade of his life, he was basically imprisoned in his monastic cell. And he wasn't allowed to share space with the, the other friars unless it was Sunday and he could attend mass with them. But Joseph levitated constantly and he levitated to great heights. He also literally flew, sometimes forwards, sometimes backwards. And there are many accounts of his levitations, including one where he flew over the head of Pope Urban VIII. And Urban VIII said, supposedly, if this friar dies before I do, I will testify at his canonization inquest that he flew over my head. But Urban died before Joseph, so he never got to do that. There's also an account of a um, Lutheran Protestant prince from Saxony who was traveling through Italy in Assisi, where Joseph was at that time. Uh, he saw Joseph fly from one end of the nave to the other of the Basilica of St. Francis, and he converted to Catholicism. And this was a very celebrated uh, and, and controversial case because, you know, he, he was a Saxon prince. He wasn't only a Saxon prince. He was a Saxon prince from the part of Saxony where Luther had begun his reformation. And Joseph defies scientific explanation. And actually, uh, for historians, you know, and I'm, now I'm speaking as a professional historian, puts historians uh, in a very difficult situation because we have so many accounts of his levitations from so many different sorts of people. And it's so continuous and so constant up to the moment of his death that what do we do? How do we explain this? Actually, a lot of very powerful individuals in Europe, and not only Catholic ones, begged permission to go see Joseph and were denied permission. Among them was Queen Christina of Sweden, who eventually ended up converting to Catholicism. But this is where the institutional church stepped in and would not allow this man to become some sort of sideshow, or not a sideshow, just the opposite, main attraction. So they put him away out of sight. But there's no denying the fact that the descriptions of his levitations are also very detailed. And one of the things about his levitations, one of these details, is that whenever he went into ecstasy, he would go into uh, this sort of cataleptic state. What is that cataleptic? It means that whatever position you're in when you enter this ecstasy or seizure, you're frozen in this. And no one can move your limbs. You can even put a candle up to the person's eye and they won't blink if their eyes were open. They'll remain open. 
and actually poor Joseph and many others like him were actually pricked with needles to see if they would react or even worse than that and they could not react now this is a known medical state cataleptic seizure in Joseph's case he not only froze but when he froze and in ecstasy went into levitation the clothing he was wearing also froze so he was in like some kind of bubble outside of time and space and that's what this British scientist has been very interested in and has been emailing me about because he has this theory about levitators being outside of time and space because Joseph uh, levitated frequently while he was saying mass and of course the mass would be interrupted if he went into a seizure one of these ecstasies but as soon as he came out of his ecstasy he would pick up with the the mass the, the liturgy exactly where he had left off as if no time had elapsed let me ask you in the case of saint joseph and and the other mystics that levitated do they do we have any account that they remembered or did any of them remember that they levitated i i mean we obviously we know saint Teresa wrote about it yeah. so well, she she knew but i'm i say in the in terms of remember do they remember like going up to great heights and looking out and, well, yeah. and flying around and describing them? no um and actually you know saint Teresa is unique in the detail that she provides about what it is like to levitate but she doesn't describe what it's like to be above the ground and looking down on everybody else uh, what she describes is the ecstasy and it's the same with joseph and all other levitators from the accounts that we have when they return to where they left off before the ecstasy they are aware that they've had an ecstasy but they no, there are no descriptions of what it's like to be uh, above everyone else and looking down on them or anything of the sort. And Joseph, he was aware of the fact that he had been quote unquote gone, but that's about it. And another curious phenomenon, which is somewhere between the physical, the mental and spiritual, is that many of these mystics who have these ecstasies are not well-trained theologians but they gain all of this expertise in christian theology due to their ecstasies and what they encounter during their ecstasies and uh it, this is this is known as infused knowledge that's what it's called they, re they receive infused knowledge and uh, everyone marvels at how well they can navigate their way through christian theology even though they don't have degrees and in the case of Joseph, actually, it's the most extreme because Joseph, by my modern definitions, and I don't know what the current acceptable term is, was mentally challenged. And his nickname growing up in his little village in Italy was Boca Aperta, open mouth, because that's how he walked around all the time. And he was, he was basically the village idiot. And yet uh, later on in his life, churchmen and very learned theologians alike are very impressed by his command of Christian theology. So is that a physical phenomenon? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's one of these other things that, you know, point to a transcending of normal human life, normal human existence. You know, these physical phenomena, we talk about the bilocation and the elevations and the stigmata, but I think also you can count it as a physical phenomena in terms of it affects our physical life. When we talked about Padre Pio earlier, I remembered a story I had read or heard. I can't remember. It was a while back. And, and if I get this wrong or if it's not real, I ask our <laughs> listeners to forgive me. But I want to share it because it's, it's in, I think it kind of plays into what we're talking about, that it's not just a physical the body part of it but the story was that a another priest that was a good friend of padre pio had been involved in a car accident and was taken to the hospital so while he's in the hospital he asks another friend to go tell padre pio that that he had been in an accident and that he was injured and to please pray for him so the friend ran out and 
found Padre Pio and it says, I've come to tell you that so-and-so is in the hospital. And he says, well, let him know that the angels move faster than you do. <laughs> I already know. And I've already been praying yeah. for him, yeah. intimating or, or implying that this other priest who was in the accident's guardian angel had told Padre Pio's guardian angel uh -huh. and had informed Padre Pio of it. And he had already started praying for him. He said, I already know he was in an accident. Yeah. His guardian angel told my guardian angel and he told me. That, that, so, that's a very typical Padre Pio story. Yeah. But it's a, it's physical in, in the sense that they're hearing, they're hearing something that they can understand right. and are acting on it on a physical way. So or in the case of Padre Pio, I, I hope we can come back to him sometime later. You know, Padre Pio could read minds ostensibly. So we're told we have numerous, numerous uh, hundreds and hundreds of testimonials of individuals who went to confess to Padre Pio, the sacrament of confession, penance. And um, he would refuse to absolve them. I mean, they'd go through their list of sins and then he'd say, okay, you're holding back. I can't, I can't absolve you until you come fully clean. And then he would tell them what that sin was if they, if they hesitated or if they refused to. They'd say, what about this? And then we, you know, we have hundreds of testimonies of people who were just astonished that he could read their minds. And that's another, that, that, that doesn't, you know, it, this isn't a nebulous area between physical and mental and spiritual and whatever, but this is one of those other uh, phenomena of mysticism. A lot of these mystics do end up having some kind of telepathic ability, uh, which in the case of Padre Pio, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on him. I don't know if it was like a permanent thing that he had all the time or if it came and went, but it was fairly constant in his case. So we're back to the supernatural, right? And, and to the impossible and things that are now either considered nonsense, science fiction, <laughs> or fantasy. Or in the case of, um, I, I've discovered re recently more and more, small number, but still a growing number of scholars, serious scholars with good academic positions who are willing to challenge dogmatic materialism and, and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe science just is, is limited. In, in its vision and in its scope. And we, we need to reconsider this dogmatic materialism. Uh, perhaps there's more. Or in the case of some scholars, not perhaps there's more. Simply, there is more. So we're still dominated in our culture by dogmatic materialism. But look at, look at all the films, TV programs, novels that have been so enormously successful that have sold millions of books that focus on the supernatural. There is this fascination with the supernatural. And actually, one of the more distressing turns in filmmaking in the past decade or two has been the fact that all the, practically every big blockbuster movie is about superheroes <laughs> who have supernatural powers. So what does that tell you about? not just our culture, but about human nature. Well, when you look at the term dogmatic materialism, it is dogmatic. It's sort of a religion in, in itself. Yes, it is. Yeah. So maybe they have their own mysticism as well. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe their mysticism are those superheroes with supernatural well, powers. These uh, superheroes with supernatural powers who dominate, film culture nowadays, who goes to see these movies? And what do people think afterwards uh, about this completely made up universe or completely made up reality? It's hard to tell. I have no clue. Absolutely none. But the fact is that, you know, the Harry Potter books and films, what an audience. It's just incredible. The millions, millions, millions of copies sold translations into almost every current language, there is some hunger and thirst out there for, for this kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into the Harry Potter stuff because it's about magic, right? And magic in Christian theology 
is all of it, absolutely all of it, is demonic. So, <laughs> no Harry Potter for me. Yeah, we might be kicking a hornet's nest. Yeah, there. well, yes, yes, we are. Well, that's what happens. When you deal with religion, you're, you're, it's, it's pretty much like, you know, electric power line that has uh, fallen during a storm and it's, it's still live and it's on the road. That's what religion is like when it comes to public reaction to it. It's a live wire and you're always skirting danger when you talk about these things. Well, one thing I do know is over the years, I've had friends that are atheists and even family members that are atheists. And the one thing, it for me, it's not so much proving to them that there is a God in my discussions with them because they've made up their minds and there's nothing I'm going to say to to change it. Ironically, the only one who can change their mind would be God. But what I do discuss with them is how their position is no less religious than my position right. on the existence yes. of God. They say, well, you believe in some fantasy being that that lives in a heaven that no one's ever seen, no one can ever explain. I go, well, you believe in some fantasy belief that everything just suddenly appeared out of nowhere and just out of blind luck that matter suddenly appeared, that all these things appeared. And, you know, now we're becoming a podcast on on the origins of the universe, but... I think it plays into the whole mysticism part, and I kind of joked about them having, uh, atheists having their own type of mysticism, but they sort of do because they convince themselves that there's no other explanation than than their own, and they see visions that aren't there. That's right, and um, my favorite quote from, from any atheist is uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, a British mathematician and philosopher. Richard Russell once uh, famously said, I see no difference between men who eat too little and see angels and men who drink too much and see snakes. And um, my, my comeback to that statement always is, yeah, there's a huge difference. One sees snakes, the other one sees angels. <laughs> because the whole proposition behind Russell's uh, statement is you can't prove God exists. You can't prove angels exist. But the flip side of that proposition is, well, can you prove they don't? So based on human experience, some men see angels, some women fly. <laughs> and this is where, you know, I'm going to give, um, I don't usually do this, but a, a shameless plug for my forthcoming book, They Flew. A history of the impossible. If anyone is interested in, in these subjects, my book will be out in September, and it's about these so-called impossible miracles and how not not just how a historian can handle them, but how anyone can handle this evidence and what a difference it makes in the way in which we conceive of the world. Well, we're definitely doing an episode on the book when it comes out, and obviously. We'll provide a link, and anybody who wants to get a copy of it, it'll be available. And if you haven't read any of Cardles' books, I highly recommend you do. He's a wonderful writer, incredible storyteller, and you won't be disappointed. You won't be able to put the book down. So that's my shameless plug for you, Thank Carlos. You. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I have never done this before, honestly. I, I, I have appeared on many kind of chat shows and stuff, but I have never plugged a book. But since this is so germane to what we were talking about today, I thought I would mention it. Well, in full disclosure, that's how we started talking about the podcast. When you told me about the book a few months ago, yeah. that you had were finishing it up. And, and I came up with a brilliant idea of we should do a podcast when the book comes out. And I remember your response. We don't have to wait. Let's do it yeah. now. Yeah. Yes. And I'm glad you and, and I'm glad you came up with that because I'm having the time of my life doing this podcast with Seize you. Seize the day. Never leave for tomorrow what you can do today. Absolutely. So speaking of seizing the day, what do we have for next episode? Oh, how about St. Francis of Assisi? We go back in time now 
to the 13th century. But Francis is very important in the history of Christian mysticism. I was hoping you were going to say that. And actually, Francis is, you know, very much a Catholic saint. But Francis is one of those rare Catholic saints who has somehow pierced through to our current culture because go to any garden store that has little cement figures and chances are that you'll find a statue of St. Francis who has become immensely popular among American gardeners for some reason or set of reasons that I still cannot fathom. <laughs> I take it he's not the patron saint of gardening. Uh, I have not seen that associated uh, with him. <laughs> no, but he is there in all sorts of secular gardens. Uh, St. Francis, who loves the birds, who loves nature. And St. Francis is immensely important for many reasons. And we'll get into that next time. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And with that said, I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in, for all your support. This podcast is being listened to more than we ever could have imagined. So thank you for that. And we hope you tell your friends and join us on the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>